0: Welcome to From the Booth, a podcast where we talk about the film streaming at BYU's International Cinema. This is our fifth podcast of fall semester 2021. I'm Mark Yamada, co-director of International Cinema, and I'm joined today by Professor Christopher Chip Oskerson, former director of IC. Welcome back, Chip. Hey, I'm glad to be here again with you, Mark. (laughs) That's right. The good old days here. Chip teaches in comparative arts and letters at BYU, focusing on 19th and 20th century Scandinavian literature, silent film, fittingly enough, and the relationship between literature, film, arts, and the environment. Professor Oscarson is currently serving as associate dean of general education, but his heart will always be with international cinema. Right, Chip? That's exactly right. <laughs> All right, you well, take the is- man out of the cinema, but not the cinema out of the man. Or That's woman. right. <laughs> As you know, Chip, a small group of film archivists got together and declared September 29th uh, this Wednesday to be National Silent Movie Day. And of course, silent movies are movies without synchronized sound and dialogue. Music was played live in theaters to accompany the the action that happens on screen and dialogue and narration is relayed or was relayed through intertitles and in some cases through narrators. So silent film in some ways weren't really silent in a sense right they were theaters yeah. often places of music and dialogue and sound yeah rarely were they would they have been silent actually you're right yeah yeah so in honor of national silent movie day we're showing the film the artists from 2011 which is a kind of a modern contemporary remaking of a silent film along with the phantom carriage later this semester today we wanted to give a little bit of an introduction to silent film for our listeners and maybe some ideas about how to watch them. Chip, talk a little bit about the history of silent film, the silent film era. How long did it last? How did it come about? And what kind of ultimately led to its end?
1: Yeah, so the silent film era um, starts with the first public uh, exhibition of, of cinema, which was in 1895, in the end of 1895 in Paris. And you have to think about uh, the, those first, you know, kind of cinema technologies within the context of all the complex visual practices that were going on in the late 19th century, you know, magic lantern shows and stereoscopes are, you know, two of the, you know, maybe the most common, but there was all kinds of of things that, you know, were going on that were, you know, much, you know, part of this much broader culture. And this was seen as, as just the latest iteration. The Lumiere brothers, you know, developed this technology. They Their family company uh, dealt with photographic equipment and and things, and so it was natural that they would take an interest in this. They weren't the only ones developing it. There was actually a German inventor who developed the technology first, but never showed it publicly. So the credit is usually given to the Lumieres This is the first public screening in late 1895. And from there, they they kind of took the show on the road, so to speak, and that you get the first screenings in most countries in, in Europe at any rate come in the you know, in the succeeding years. And what they would typically do is someone would, would buy, you know, a license for the technology from them and then would take the show around and show it in, you know, at fairgrounds and in churches. And in I mean, it was, it was mobile, right. There weren't theaters that people came to and they would show these short films. They were typically kind of gag films or they were, you know, films of a particular view they were kind of trick films a lot of times, you know. To usually around twenty, thirty seconds long, and right. they, you know, would kind of show these as part of a whole act. It would be kind of a vaudeville show, and while you were changing the reel to the next film, you would have something else going on on, on stage. And you know this was the this was the practice, and it was you know very much uh low brow culture you know that it was not <laughs> kind of a rare considered to be a rarefied art form sure. um there's little preservation of films from this time. I mean we do have some of those first films that were produced but but by and large, most of what was produced, especially in these early years were lost because you would go around and you would show it, show it, show it until it absolutely wore out. Then you would buy some more films and then you would go around and show it, show it, show it till they wore out again. Right. So um, so most of, of the film from this time is lost. And it's usually described in the terms of uh, Tom Gunning, who's a well-known film uh, historian. He described this, er, this first decade of cinema as the cinema of attractions. There's not mm-hmm. much narrative cinema. There's some exa- uh, exceptions to that, but by and large, it's it 's about showing something to the audience that that idea of an attraction and, right. and it 's slowly around nineteen oh five ish that you uh, you begin to transition to more narrative cinema where you 're actually telling a story with it, and they get a little bit longer, but they 're still mainly under twenty minutes long, and it 's not till Around 1910, 1911, that the next really big innovation comes, which is um, and it's pioneered by the Scandinavians among others, this idea of the feature length film that you would have mm-hmm. multiple reels all in one film, and this was this was revolutionary. People didn't think that you could keep someone's attention for, for that long, right? And it required a different approach to filmmaking. And very quickly, on the heels of that longer format, where you're going to 40 minutes and 60 minutes and longer. Uh, you get new editing techniques uh, that come in. And D. W. Griffith is, you know, is credited, the American filmmaker is credited as really helping to develop the continuity editing system where you come up with this set of conventions mm. that that are somewhat arbitrary, although not entirely arbitrary, about, you know, if someone walks out this side of the screen, they should walk in on this side of the screen. If someone looks this direction, the next shot should be, you know, the what they're looking at. I mean, all these kinds of, of editing conventions that we kind of take for granted today, he's pioneered in the in the early teens, and they right. very quickly catch on and right. with the spread of Hollywood film, these are exported to the world and really develop a kind of international visual Visual language that grows in prestige and in reach. Uh, World War I really disrupts the market in key ways. The Europeans lose a lot of market share. The Americans, who are not as impeded by the war, kind of take over and flood the market with their product, and it's uh, you know control the market that they never really relinquish. And then the next really tectonic shift, of course, is the coming of sound. You know, the jazz singer, and then you know the subsequent films in the late twenties. And, and this you know, is a radical shift, and you know, this is somewhat portrayed in the film you're showing this week, uh, The Artist, because it changes everything. Um, yes. you know, the mobility of the camera is suddenly limited by the sound equipment. You have to record sound with it. Right. Um, the international flavor of film is affected, too, in that it can't move across borders as easily when you have to, you know, subtitling technology um, takes time to develop. And, you know, when you just had intertitles to translate, that was relatively easy and sure. you were telling so much of the story visually anyway, that it was a less important part. So this is kind of the, you know, the, the quick and dirty, you know, version of this. Yeah. It's a yeah. history of technological change and innovation. It was always changing and always innovating. But I'll tell you, Mark, that the, the films of the 1920s, many of which have been overlooked just because we're not used to watching films without dialogue you know, in kind of synchronous sound that they are visual marvels. I mean, it's mm. just the, the mm. developed way of telling a story through images is, is really mesmerizing. If you haven't sure. had that chance to really
0: have an immersive experience with a, you know, with a silent film, you, you need to. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. As you talk, it's, you know, in some ways the, the history of silent film is the history of film itself. And it's, um, mm. you know, we think, we think of silent film as lacking sound, but, as you mentioned, it's almost like a pure form of cinema because it's relying on visuals and it's – in some ways, if you don't have sound, you have to depend more on continuity, on narrative connections, right, in order to really kind of uh, yeah. you know, relay a story. And so transitions become important and these things carry over into our, our contemporary kind of cinematic language, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah, and well, there's, what, just, what there's such an attention to,
1: you know, to the way that shots are composed because you have to communicate so much more with the shot. You can't rely on dialogue to fill in the gap, or right. you know, the voiceover narration to tell you what the person is thinking or something like that. I mean, you could use intertitles, but the best practice was usually to communicate that visually. And, and so you're absolutely right that there was there was this kind of enthusiasm for this. This art form that could move across borders, it was the quintessential modern art form that that knew no boundaries, right? This early globalization and cinema were kind of mapped onto each other in really interesting ways.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And you know, in some ways, you think about sound too. As you know, we, we treat sound as kind of this natural part of the experience. But in some ways, it's artificial, right? I mean, we're we're dubbing, we're um, we're using, we're kind of imposing sound on images in ways that, in some ways, is artificial. And so, sound and we itself, don't it out so often either right, it just we just yeah. take it for granted that there's a soundtrack with the film, right? And so, in some ways, it's it's another effect, but it's not necessarily kind of natural to the cinematic experience. And so, film really or silent film in some ways demonstrates the way that that sound is something that comes on later but isn't necessarily kind of uh, integral maybe maybe to right. to cinema itself so yeah really great so that's kind of the the early development of sound cinema it's the 1930s uh, 20s and 30s is when so 20s is when the talkies come in yeah
1: 1927 is the jazz singer and you know the i remember you know my first introduction to the, you know, the existence of the jazz singer was actually through films like Singing in the Rain, right? Right. <laughs> Who, you know, they in a, in a very playful kind of way, represent this transition to, to sound, but it was real. <laughs> right. I mean, right. The, the shock to the industry was, you know, it was every bit as real as, as how it's depicted in those kinds of films. At first, sure. the jazz singers thought to be, oh, this is just a fad. This is going to pass. True art. You know, the true art of cinema is silent. And, of course, it wasn't. And it changed everything. And yeah. it made it really difficult for countries that spoke less commonly taught languages to get their product to market. And so right. it really affected who was able to make films and and how they were distributed and and all of these things and of course it only solidified America's dominance in in this not that other traditions didn't continue on but the 1930s were you know and, and even 40s were kind of rough for a lot of uh, international you know film markets that had to find creative ways to keep their own domestic production going
0: yeah it's interesting you say that the, the origins of silent film are kind of in the vaudeville the, the more popular forms I mean do do comedy and slapstick I mean I imagine they give themselves over to silent film in a way that maybe drama doesn't because you need maybe some intertitles to kind of relay dialogue whereas in you know slapstick you're just you're just getting kind of the, the visuals right the action. Yeah.
1: Well, and one of the the things that was difficult too for a lot of early filmmakers is that you know they wanted to do serious drama, but you have to kind of think about you know dramatic practice, which always kinds of lags behind you know what the the playwrights are doing. You know, depended on the architecture of these kind of large theaters in in, in some traditions, right? And so for for you to be seen at the back of the theater, the gestures were were large and even exaggerated in a lot of cases, and then you you put that on. You know, screen, and it it looks kind of funny, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. But, you know, the camera picks up the you know the slightest nuance in a way that you know that most people weren't weren't ready for, and sure. and so there's a, a pretty you know they have to kind of recalibrate you know film film style acting style and what that what that means. You can't always just take something on the theater and put it on film and have it work. Right. In
0: fact, more often than not, it, it didn't work. Yeah. And you know, we're showing the artists and we're showing the Phantom Carriage and, and unfortunately, I mean, the, the the audience who watches these films at IC will see them in some ways in this kind of synchronized way, where they're they're kind of losing to really kind of show them the way that silent Film is shown. We would need like an orchestra, and we might That's need great. some other things going on in right. the, know, in, <laughs> yeah, in two hundred and fifty Kimball, and so we're we're missing kind of the live experience, right, of of cinema that that in some ways the visuals were just one part of, and there were other things going on. I mean, what what did that bring to the film going experience? If, you know, imagine going back to the nineteen twenties and going to a theater, and what's the experience like?
1: Yeah that's that's a really uh, great question and of course it's it's much more varied than we tend to think of it so you would get everything from you know the the really high budget you know productions you know kind of theatrical you know previews of films might even have a score written for an orchestra for the film for every moment of the film right that there was a score that they were playing I mean that's the exception rather than the rule but those do exist right Um, and those of course are a really cool experience and if you ever you know have the the, you know the time and inclination uh, the Porternone Film Festival uh, every year at the beginning of October in Porternone Italy is a silent film festival and they always do a couple of these big full orchestrated events with wow. with the film and it, it is something else I have to I have to tell you. But yeah. that, that of course is the exception rather than the rule. More common would have been an individual piano player maybe. And sure. sometimes the film would send out kind of motifs that the the piano player could do variations on, but it was impromptu right it was uh they you know the the piano player would maybe watch the film beforehand, maybe not, and <laughs> would, would play and amplify or play down whatever part he or she thought was appropriate yeah um, and so that that improvised music you know has its own kind of quality and can play with the audience what the you know so it was a back and forth there's even some really interesting studies uh, when um Birth of a Nation, which is you know, a very famous American film, very deeply troubling in terms of its racist ideology that's you know that's informing it. You know, Ku Klux Klan sure. comes writing to the rescue at the end and all this. It it actually had a really successful run on the south side of Chicago, mm, wow. <laughs> which you know they kind of had researchers a little bit puzzled. And and one particular research did some re- looking into this. And one of the reasons for it is that there were these black musicians that were playing the musical accompaniment and basically satirizing what was going on. <laughs> on the screen. So it wasn't reinforcing what was going; it was actually sure. undercutting it in in clever yeah. in clever ways, which played really well with you know with the audience. So the, yeah. the music, you know, the musical experience could be very different. And and what I've described has largely been the Anglo American or the European American experience. There are traditions, of course, in Japan, for example, yeah. that are very different about how sound was, you know, was
0: working with the image where they would actually have people speaking. Right. Yeah. 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 And I think you, I think you mentioned when you went to Italy, you saw one of the, the silent film narrators, the Benshi right? Who were yeah. these these really interesting performers in and of themselves. They would stand by the the image, the visuals, the, the film, and they would, they would introduce the film. They would they would give narration. They would even give the different characters dialogue. And even kind of like what, what you were talking about, kind of undercut the film, comment on it while yeah. it's going on. A little bit like a Mystery Science Theater 2000 where you're getting, you know, and it's kind of a shame that we have such a, a synchronized experience when you go into film now, right? That it's, everything is kind of brought into one instead of having these different voices and this kind of alternative yeah. way of looking at things. So, yeah, that's really interesting. <laughs>
1: Well, and you think about how—I mean, this is still true, but we forget it because of the synchronized experience. But every showing of film is a performance of that film. The context is is completely unique, right? The people who are there, the time of day it's showing, where it's showing, whether you know it's at home, you know, streaming across the TV. Every one of those instances is a unique performance of it. Right. and and we've lost it because it's you know it's recorded and uh, and we kind of forget about that but the, you know returning the you know the music to you know live performance is a reminder of how this is always the case actually that it's always sure. a unique uh, even if you're doing the same music you know from the same score how you play it and how the audience receives it and the interaction of the audience and the you know the mood of what's going on in the country at the time or in the community at the time right all of these things will affect the interpretation the experience of you know of that film and that's sure. one of the you know the great things you know about it the way that we see a film from 1921 today is of course very different than how people saw the film in its original showing and sure. every moment of time in between.
0: Yeah, no, I like think you said um, any filmic experience is, is a new experience, even though it's become a little bit more homogenized, synchronized. But silent film really kind of relays just that more performative, the impromptu, the even the you know the suspense because you know you have a again you have a. Musical accompaniment, and they might not know the, the songs well, or they might not have done it the same way before. Or you have a performer who's who makes up new dialogue on the spot, and so there's yeah. there's a there's a different aspect to it every time. But yeah, so unfortunately, and you know, I mean, it, it would be nice to be able to do something like that in, in 250 Kimball. It'd be hard to to recreate the experience of going to the, to the films uh, in, the, in the movies in the 1920s. But anyway. Uh, we'll do what we can. <laughs> yeah, why we do these
1: live performances, I mean, where we have an audience together, you know, watching a film together right. is different than watching it alone, right? And it when is, I watch yeah. a film that I've seen alone together with a
0: group, I experience it differently. Yeah. I, I went to see Rocky Horror Picture Show up in Salt Lake, which is, you know, this performative thing. It's it's a, It was a stage play and then it was a film, but it's become more than that. And it's they sh- they show the movie, and it's kind of this old kind of drive-in B-movie kind of thing, but they have people up there giving the lines, they have actors coming up on stage, they have people in, in cosplay basically coming up yeah. and-, and performing the characters. And, and so it, it kind of reminds me maybe a little bit of what you would expect in a theater, a little bit more kind of interaction and action and, and spontaneity and creation going on.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So anyway, well, we are excited to be able to show a few silent films this semester. The artist is playing this week. It's a contemporary remake of silent film from the 1930s. And later this semester, we'll be showing The Phantom Carriage, which is a Swedish silent film from the 1920s, which you, Chip, will be introducing. Would you like to say something about the film to tease
1: it a little bit? Well, let me say just a a couple things about the artist, and then I'll say a couple things about the uh, the Phantom Carriage. The artist is an interesting film because it's a deliberate uh, re—you know—a making of a silent film when, of course, you have all the technologies of sound at your disposal. And it's an interesting exercise, and you know what what happens when you put these creative obstacles in your way. You know what is it that comes out? The thing that's most delightful about the film, I think, is the way that it's an homage to to silent filmmaking. And it very deliberately tries to recreate the look and the feel of, of a silent film in all its glory it's so slick (laughs) that in some ways it's like unlike any silent film I've ever seen. (laughs) And, you know, sometimes the lenses don't seem, you know, exactly right and things like that. But I think they really do capture the spirit, you know, very, very truly. of it. you know, they use a four by three aspect ratio and, you know, it's black and white. It's really very well done. And it captures the spirit of the silent films really well. And so that, you know, that's why I think I'd recommend it. Interestingly, it, was, it won Best Picture, right? Uh, the Oscar yeah. for Best Picture. And you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I believe it's the first French production ever to win Best picture. And I think it's hmm. interesting. I don't I don't know all the statistics on the, you know, the winners of Best Picture, but very seldomly, shall we say, has a foreign made film or a foreign finance film even won Best Picture. Parasite, of course, really broke this this boundary in a significant way a few years later. But right. it's I think it's interesting that it had to be a silent film that kind of <laughs> paved the way. There's yeah. a real allergy in America to, to reading subtitles and like you know, if it's a silent film,
0: somehow right. that helps.
1: Get us right. Right. No, for that's me. for sure. That's for I sure. Don't know. The Phantom Carriage is really uh, one of the best examples of a Swedish Golden Age, what they refer to as the Golden Age uh, silent cinema. The Golden Age in Sweden was this period after World War One up until um, the mid twenties. When uh Swedish filmmaking really reached a you know a, a pinnacle and a and its reach around the world, part of this came because Sweden wasn't uh, directly involved in World War I, which allowed them to continue to uh, devote resources towards filmmaking where other countries were diverted from it and so there were were films at the ready to distribute as soon as the war ended, and they were able to jump on that and they had really great technical expertise. And some really wonderful directors and uh, and actors that seize the moment in a spectacular way. And you know, foremost perhaps among them is Victor Schistrom, who's both the director and stars in the film, The Phantom Carriage. It's an adaptation of a novella by the famous uh, Swedish author Selma Lagerlöf and it's kind of a dickensian sort of story you you feel like there's some echoes perhaps of uh christmas carol it's a morality tale of sorts about uh, this uh this man david Holm, and the uh salvation army sister edith who who's who's out to you know to help redeem him one of the things that uh, you, you have to pay attention to with this film is just the the technical mastery in the uh, double exposures there 's ghosts and things like that in this film and they and this was all done in the camera you know all these special effects were done in the camera and the, the photography is just stunning it's we have a great restoration of this film we have a great copy of this film to show from uh, from blu-ray uh, criterion collection i uh, did a, a really nice job together with the swedish institute to to restore this film and with a great new soundtrack as well that's a uh, done by a contemporary composer and and performed. It's a kind of experience that you can lose yourself in. And you get kind of in in the zone with mm. silent films. There's no talking to distract you, right? That you just people <laughs> kind of get get deeply in the zone. And it's you know one of the real high watermarks of of Swedish cinema. Uh, you'll see an echo of parts of the of the Phantom Carriage later on, even in the semester in the film Wild Strawberries by Ingmar Bergman. Bergman mm-hmm. uh, was very much making Wild Strawberries with the Phantom Carriage in mind, not in the least because the lead actor in Wild Strawberries is none other than Victor Sjöström, who was oh. the director and lead in the Phantom Carriage. And there's some very direct visual quotes, and I'll, I'll mention this in my lecture and kind of you know bring some of this out to help people you know see some of this. It's a
0: it's a really great story by, you know, a great author and great filmmaker. Well, that's great. That's an interesting connection. So Phantom Carriage later this semester, and I'm sure you'll have more to say about it when you lecture on the film. it's 100
1: years. It's 100 years since the Phantom Carriage came out. So we've we've been doing this for several years, doing 100 years of cinema and, you know, showing a film that's 100 years old, which, um, and it holds up well, I have to say.
0: (laughs) Awesome. So that's playing later this semester. And then we have the artist this week, so check out silent film. You will not be uh, sorry for uh, you won't miss the sound, right? You that's you right. Want, you want to see all films without sound after that? Maybe <laughs> <laughs> some music. That's right. <laughs> well, thanks, Chip, for uh, joining us today.
1: Oh, my pleasure. It's always good to be with you.
0: Yeah, and thanks to you for joining us on From the Booth. Our podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU and supported by the BYU College of Humanities. We are solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here as they do not represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. As always, we thank our producer, Devin Glenn, and our sound engineer, Marina hegstrom Pratt. We would also like to acknowledge the musical talents of Johnny Stallings, who wrote and recorded music for the podcast. Until next time, see you in the Kindle Tower.